If you have been at Southside for a minute, then you know that I like to use the month of December, this time leading up to Christmas, these weeks referred to as Advent on the Christian liturgical calendar, which is just a Latin word. It's not a scary word. It's just a Latin word that means arrival or coming. I like to use this time to focus our minds and our hearts and our attention on the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there are three aspects to his coming uh, that I want us to be thinking about over these next three weeks together. One, there's the arrival of Jesus to Bethlehem that we celebrate at Christmas time. That's the first one. The second one, there's the coming of Jesus into our hearts at the time of conversion. And then third, there's the return of Jesus to earth at the close of time. And so there's Christmas time, there's the time of our conversion, and there's the close of time. Jesus came, Jesus has come, and Jesus will come again. And all three of these aspects of the advent of Christ, of his arrival, of his coming, we'll be talking about Uh, over these next three weeks together. So this morning, I'm beginning a three-week series that I'll finish on Christmas Eve, and I've titled the series, Adventures and Acts. And I have a nice little slide to go along with it. Uh, If you'd put that up for me, AV team. Adventures and Acts. I wanted you to see it, so I put that little hyphen there, just in case you didn't actually catch on uh, to my title. I put a lot of work and thought into that. So if you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 17. I just want to give you a quick recap. Uh, We're in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. He's received this vision and this call to go to Macedonia. And so with this little group of his that consists of at least himself Silas, Timothy, and Luke, they go to Macedonia and plant the very first house church in all of Europe there in Philippi at Lydia's house. There are several memorable conversions that happen there in Philippi. And during their stay, uh, one of those uh, conversions is of the Roman jailer that Paul and Silas got to know. And there was even an earthquake that was part of that, if you'll remember. Uh, But following that conversion... Uh, they were asked to leave Philippi. And so they leave, and they travel about 100 miles to Thessalonica. Uh, It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was a very important city. Paul will later write two letters that we have in the New Testament uh, to the church in Thessalonica, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And so let's open up our text here in Acts chapter 17 and read about their time in Uh, Thessalonica. We'll pick up in verse 2. We read, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, I've pointed this out several times in our study of Acts together. We've seen it over and over again. In each city that Paul goes to, he launches his mission work where? In the synagogue. 
Here, Luke writes, if you haven't called on yet, it was his custom to begin his work in the synagogue. You see, Paul, the very first missionary, we can learn from Paul. He always started with what he knew. The synagogue is where he began, and he began with who he knew, the Jews. You know, I really think this is a very important principle. It's an important takeaway for us from uh, Luke's writing here in Acts. As we think about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with others, this is how Paul the apostle, the first missionary of the church, did evangelism. He began with who he knew. And so here's the practical takeaway from that. Parents, share the gospel with your children. Students, share the gospel with your roommates. Siblings, share the gospel with your other siblings. Neighbors, share the gospel with your neighbors. Employees, share the gospel with your colleagues. Lawyers with lawyers, teachers with teachers, police officers with police officers. Start with what you know. Start with who you know. This is what Paul did. He went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Paul's approach. This word that's translated in verse 3 as proving is a great word. It literally means to place beside. It means to place beside. And I think that's very insightful because here's what Paul is trying to do at the synagogue. He wants to place the Christ of the Jewish scriptures beside the Jesus of history. Do you see that? He wants to take the Christ of the Jewish scriptures and place it beside the Jesus of history in order to prove that it's the same person. You see, by placing them side by side, he can show how the prophecies and the predictions about the Christ are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. The prophecies of the Christ and the person of Jesus are the same. Place them side by side. Take a good look. It's the same person. And here's what he showed the Jews in the synagogue about the Christ. He used the Scripture to show two things. One, that the Christ had to suffer. Two, that the Christ would rise from the dead. He used the Old Testament scriptures to reveal to them that the Christ had to suffer and had to rise from the dead. Do you remember at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, the resurrected Jesus met up with some of the disciples on the way to Emmaus, and in verse 26, he asked them, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Verse 27, Luke writes, and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, 
Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's the same thing that Jesus did. It's the same approach. He took what the scriptures had to say about the Christ, and then he placed his life next to it. And when you place those two things side by side, it proves that Jesus is the Christ. You see, this is the approach that Paul's taking here in the synagogue. He's explaining to them what was said in all the scriptures about the Christ and about how the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. You see, that's the correct way to understand the Christ. According to the scriptures, Christ had to suffer. Christ had to raise from the dead. Yet Paul will tell us that Christ on a cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. The anointed one, the Messiah, the king of kings would never be hung on a tree and therefore cursed by God. I've talked about this before, but it's kind of like when you do a connect the dot. You know, initially you look at the page and all you see is a bunch of dots. But then if you take your pencil and start going from one dot to the next dot, a picture begins to form. That's what Paul does for these Jews at the synagogue. He starts tracing through all of the Old Testament scriptures. And you can just imagine some of the scriptures that he pulled out to show this about the Christ. Genesis 22 comes to mind. The great story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. The Messianic Psalms come to mind. There's so many. Psalm 2. Psalm 22, along with many others. Isaiah 52 and 53 come to mind. Those passages about the suffering servant. And there's many others that he, I'm sure he used. But he connected the dots to reveal that the Christ had to suffer. That the Christ was going to rise from the dead. So then if you can see this picture that's formed as we connect the dots through the Old Testament scriptures... Then, then you place beside that, that picture of the, of, the, of the crucified and risen Christ from Scripture, you place beside that the life of Jesus. Then you have Jesus Christ. It comes into focus. You see, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Joseph's last name was not Christ. Christ is the designation fulfilled by Jesus according to scriptures. This Jesus of history is the Christ of the Jewish scriptures. He is Jesus the Christ. And Paul explains to them all the scriptures over the course of three Sabbaths, Luke tells us concerning the Christ, and then proves that they've been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. So what happens? Verse 4. Some of the Jews were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Verse 5. But other Jews were jealous. Listen, it's, it's a bad combination 
when you put zealous and jealous together. That never ends well. That's not good. You have these religious Jews, devout for God. They're zealous. And then you make them jealous. Paul and Silas have have hurt their attendance. People are deciding to leave the synagogue and join their group. It's probably hurt their egos a little bit. Some of it's probably financial. Luke tells us there were some prominent women who left, wealthy women who supported the synagogue and have now joined the church. So these zealous Jews, out of their jealousy, they round up some bad characters out of the marketplace. They form a mob, and they start a riot in the city. Now, the Roman Empire was a very tolerant society, but one thing the Romans did not tolerate was a riot. And so this was done purposefully to get Rome's attention because they wanted Paul and Silas gone. They wanted to force them out of the city. So verse 5, they rushed to Jason's house. Now, we were just here just introduced to Jason. Jason was most likely a recent convert there. Who's, who was hosting the first house church in Thessalonica. They run to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd, but when they f- didn't find them there, instead they dragged Jason, some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting these two charges at them. They're making two charges of these men, Paul and Silas. The first charge is this. These men have caused trouble all over the world and have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. That's charge number one. The NRSV reads, these people have been turning the whole world upside down, and now they've come here also. I love that translation. That's the NRSV. These people have been turning the whole world upside down. And now they've come here too. That's quite a charge being made. These men have been disturbing the peace all over the world. And then here's the second charge they make. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king one called Jesus. Now, this charge is a bit more serious. This is treason. In the Roman Empire, Caesar alone is king. He's the emperor of all. In a phrase like another king would have gotten everyone's attention. Verse 8, when they heard this, The crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Verse 9, then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Here's the charge being made against Paul and Silas combined as one charge. Here it is. These men are turning the world upside down. How? By saying 
there is another king. These men are turning the whole wide world upside down with this message. They're saying there is another king. You see, the message of another king named Jesus is turning everything upside down. There's another king, and his name is Jesus. And here's the thing I don't want you to miss. He's another king. He's not just another king like all the other kings before him. He's not just another king as if he's just an additional one to the many who've gone before him. No, he's another king in the sense that he's another kind of king. Jesus is a king unlike Caesar. The world has never seen a king like Jesus. He's another kind of king altogether. His kingdom will be unlike any other kingdom of the world. He's another king. Let me ask you a question this morning. What's the message of Christmas? Think about that just for a minute. What's the message of Christmas? Let me ask it to you another way. What message do you convey to others about Christmas? You see, as Christians... We should be the ones conveying the message of Christmas. So what is the message of Christmas? Is it about family and and giving gifts to one another? Is it about peace on earth and goodwill toward men? Those are part of what this season's about, but, but what's the message of Christmas? I can't even ask the question without feeling a little bit like Charlie Brown. I grew up watching Charlie Brown's Christmas, and so I can't even ask the question, what's the message of Christmas without kind of, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Gregory needs to come up with his, like Linus, tell us what it's all about. But what's the message of Christmas? Well, the title for this three-week series is Adventures and Acts, and I titled it that because I want you to know that the message of Christmas is the same as the message of Acts 17. Here's the message of Christmas. There's another king. The one they call Jesus. He's another king. 
And he's not just another king. He's another kind of king altogether. One whose very name will turn the whole world upside down. You see, for his is an upside down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I want us to end here this morning. We're going to be coming in in these three weeks. We'll kind of be going in between Acts and Matthew chapter 2 here. But here in Matthew chapter 2, it's a very familiar story. It's one that we read uh, around this time of year. I want to read with us uh, these first two verses of Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Perhaps you've never caught this in the question asked by the wise man. But I think there's something that he gets that's important for the rest of us to understand. You see, the one the wise men were seeking was born king. Did you know that Jesus is the only person who's ever been born king? Typically, someone has to be inaugurated as king. Even if someone's born into a family line of kings, the child's not born king. Might be born prince. And when a child's born, his father, his grandfather, maybe an uncle, an older brother, is already the king. He has to wait to become the king. However, Jesus was born king. With his first breath, he was king. Jesus came into the world as king. And we know Jesus' birth was different from all the other births because Matthew allows us to attend the baby shower. Isn't that great? Right here in the second chapter, we get to attend the baby shower. What kind of gifts are normally seen at a baby shower? Perhaps a UK onesie? Burp cloths? Diapers? My favorite's always Sophie the giraffe. Our kids love Sophie the giraffe. It's just like this teething giraffe. That's a great one. Show up with one of those. You'll please everybody. 
But those are what we're kind of used to seeing. Those are kind of the gifts at a baby shower, right? But you remember Jesus' baby shower, right? He was given myrrh. Myrrh symbolized the death and the burial of this child. He was given incense, which symbolized the worship of this child. And he was given gold because this child was born a king. This is a royal child. So the message of Christmas is more than just a little baby being born in a manger. The message of Christmas is there's another king. The one called Jesus. When you see the wise men in the nativity, even though they came much later, perhaps they saw the star on the night Jesus came, but these guys had to travel all the way from Babylon. So it was much later that they arrived, but when you see them in that nativity scene, they're the ones who hosted the baby shower. For the one born king. I have just a little show and tell that I want to share with you this morning. It's one of my favorite Christmas gifts I've ever received. I'm going to get emotional talking about it. Oh, man. Turn 50 and I get emotional. Oh, what happened? I threw my shoulder out coaching the other night. Just all, all I was doing, I was coaching the girls and, all, and the girls were on the floor. And one of the girls made the shot. And all I did it was this. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, my word. I need ice. I need ice. But anyway, I've gotten emotional too, but that's good. It's good. We need to be more emotional. Um, but one of the students in my campus ministry at UGA, his name was Troy, um, he gave me this gift. He made it for me one Christmas. Um, I had shared a devotional with the college students about our crucified king. And uh, I love this. I mean, it's pretty talented. I don't, he kind of wove this, these thorns together and and painted them gold. Um, and we, every Christmas, we pull it out and display it around the house. Sometimes we've put it on the top of the tree. Uh, this year, we have it kind of displayed prominently on our uh, piano in our living room. <laughs> but it's a golden crown of thorns. It's a golden crown of thorns. Um, and for us, at least in our home, we display this at Christmas time because the message of Christmas that we want to convey is that there's another king, the one called Jesus. 
Jesus is the only one who's ever been born a king. And Christmas is a time that we celebrate his arrival into the world. So let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus? Is he just another man? Or is he another king? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to the earth to be our king. And not just another king, but another kind of king, a crucified king, one who'd be born in a manger and have thorns placed on his head as a crown. We gather as your people, celebrate the birth of a king. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.